Okay. Elizabeth, did you hear all the wonderful things I said about your husband? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll just have to ask him. No. <laughs> no, for those who didn't hear, uh, this morning Bob Roberts is going to be presenting on John Donne. And um, Bob is an excellent reader of text, and he has been teaching philosophy for over 40 years. And it is going to be a treat. But I, what I had said then was that we have a colic that I would like to share at the beginning of every session. It was the colic that Father James shared last week when he talked about Thomas Cramner. And it is the colic for the um, second Sunday in Advent. And in the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cramner adapted many of our colics go way back like even like 400s and 500s, the ancient colics. But this is one of the ones he wrote himself. And I think it's very fitting as we go through our series interpreting scripture in the Anglican tradition because the collect says it all. So let us bow our heads. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us to hear them, read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That is indeed a a very fitting prayer with which to begin this, <coughs> this talk. Excuse me. <coughs> I have, uh, as you can see on the handout, I hope, uh, three themes, the notion of metaphor, understanding, and spiritual formation. And the, my effort will be to integrate those three to see how they they relate to each other. And I have a thesis, which I think is also on the handout. The essential goal of Bible reading is to understand it. And to understand it in the best, deepest biblical sense is to be formed by it. But the form of a human being is her character, her human traits generosity, compassion, forgivingness, justice, temperance, truthfulness, a sense of duty, and so forth. The thesis, then, <coughs> is that to, to understand the Bible adequately, you have to be biblical in character. Your heart has to be biblical. This would be the character that has the form of God's law, it would be the, the form of the mind of Jesus, the form of the Holy Spirit, his fruits. This would be the character that seeks first the kingdom of God, that has no other God before the God of Jesus Christ. And the virtues that embody this caring and this thinking would be the understanding of the Bible. Virtues, then, are the power of biblical understanding. <clears throat> now, the, the talk is divided into three parts. Um, 
The first is about what sort of thing character is. Uh, the second um, is about what understanding is. The third is about what metaphor is. And then the fourth will be the group exercise that we do um, using a text from John Donne. So what sort of thing is character according to the Bible? I propose that character is the integration of two things. How you think about life, the concept, the story, the uh, cognitive material, you might say, that, that goes into your understanding of life. And then secondly, what you care about. So you have Jesus telling us that the, uh, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Um, and he's telling us that seek first the kingdom of God. Um, and the Bible is full of these, these concerns about concern, <laughs> concerns about the orientation of your heart concerns about what you care about. And the integration of those two things is character. So the integration of how you, what you care about and how you think about what you care about are the, uh, are the elements, the central elements of character. <clears throat> so the, sec and the second uh, question is about what understanding is. And if you look at the duck rabbit on page two of your handout, you'll see an illustration of what understanding is. At least that's what I'm proposing. <laughs> um, so my claim is going to be that understanding is connecting things. So when you understand something in terms of its causation, you know, you don't know why such and such happened, but then you look around and, and you try to figure out what caused it, right? You're connecting the cause with the effect. That integration of those two things is, is your understanding to that extent. And the, uh, the duck rabbit illustrates that by being a thing, <laughs> an, an item, an, uh, an object that you can see in two different ways. And in each of these ways that you see it, how many, how many people can see it both as a rabbit and as a duck? Okay, good. If you can't, maybe we can help you. But <coughs> um, Anyway, what, what we do when we see it, say, as a rabbit, is we assemble in our minds, in our perception, uh, the parts of the, of, the, um, of the figure in such a way that the parts correspond to a rabbit. So the, 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 these uh, protuberations on the right um, are the ears of the rabbit, but they would be the beak of the duck. And so we, we, our, our mind kind of organizes this, this thing, all the parts, according to a concept. So we're, it's, it's as though we're reaching out and grabbing our concept of duck, and then we see it we see the figure in those terms, or we reach out and we 
see the, we take the concept of a rabbit and we see the same figure in those terms. Okay, well that, that prepares us to think a little bit about metaphor. And I'm using metaphor in a broad sense. I know English professors would have a more specific uh, understanding of it. But I mean to include things like parables, analogies, comparisons, similes, similes allegories, and uh, maybe other kinds of literary figures. <coughs> and uh, these are, in, in these cases, we, we reach out at to, to some type, something that's different from what we're trying to understand, and we connect those two things. So you can see the connection between metaphor and understanding. Metaphor enables us to understand aspects of things by comparing the thing, the metaphorical figure, with the thing that we're trying to understand. Um, now, in Dunn's work, uh, Samuel Johnson said of it, he said disapprovingly, uh, you find the most heterogeneous ideas are yoked by violence together. <clears throat> he didn't think that that was a good thing. Um, in other words, uh, Samuel Johnson apparently preferred metaphors that weren't quite such a stretch. <laughs> and, uh, and Dunn was into really stretched metaphors. But then, <clears throat> but Dunn, uh, defends himself, you might say, against Samuel Johnson, although, of course, he never met Samuel Johnson. But he defends himself by saying, I talk the way God talks. And so he has this prayer in, uh, in the Devotions Upon Emergent Occasions. It's also on the handout, where he depicts God as a poet. My God, my God, thou art a direct God. May I not say a literal God, a God who wouldst understand literally and according, who would be, wouldst be understood literally and according to the plain sense of all that thou sayest? But thou art also a figurative, a metaphorical God, too, a God in whose words there is such a height of figures, such voyages, such peregrinations to fetch remote and precious metaphors, such extensions, such spreadings, such curtains of allegories, third heavens of hyperboles, so harmonious elocution, so retired and so reserved expressions, so commanding persuasion, so persuading commandments, such sinews even in thy milk, and such things in thy words as all profane authors seem of the seed of the serpent that creeps, thou art the dove that flies. <laughs> it's, of course, this thing is just full of metaphors itself, uh, but he's defending the, the metaphorical language, his, his sort of stretched metaphorical language by saying, God did it first. I didn't, I didn't come up with this. But, um, and, and, and so we have a few 
illustrations there in the, in the handout about how, how God does do that. A kingdom, the kingdom of God, says Jesus, is like a mustard seed. Now, isn't that a stretch? The kingdom of God is a, you know, a mustard seed or um, a pearl, a farmer who scatters seed on the ground, a treasure hidden in a field, a sinner is like a beloved wayward child, a lost sheep, a lost coin. The person whose mind is rooted in God's law is like a tree planted by a stream. Some of you are like unforgiving, like an unforgiving self-righteous brother. And so forth and so forth. I mean, the, the scripture is just chock full of these things, these stretched metaphors. And uh, we, we probably are a little bit insensitized, de desensitized to the, to the threats by the fact that we, they're, they're so familiar to us, right? We, we think, well, sure, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Uh, and it seems kind of ordinary. <laughs> but, um, but originally, it's, uh, it's much more amazing. Um, and uh, Catherine Rundell, who wrote a, a biography of John Donne uh, recently, just in, I think it was published in 21 or 22, she says, T.S. Eliot, a man who had in common with Donne both poetic iconoclasm and good clothes, loved his writing. He said, quote, when a poet's mind, this is uh, Eliot, she says, when a poet's mind is perfectly equipped for its work, it is constantly amalgamating disparate experience. Whereas the ordinary man's experience is chaotic, irregular, fragmentary, fragmentary, for done, apparently unrelated scraps from the world were always forming new holes. So that's just a reiteration of what Dunn himself said. Okay. So that's, um, those are the elements of the discussion today. <coughs> I also want to bring in Patrick Egan's uh, three-part interpretive schema for, for interpreting the Bible. He talks about um, what a text says, what a text means, and what a text means to me, right, as the three elements in a, a grammatical historical interpretation of, a, of the text. And uh, in this uh, story that I'm going to tell you now, um, I want it to illustrate that as well as to illustrate um, the points that I've made about metaphor, understanding, and character. So the story is this. Um, King David um, was, he, he, he took a nap. And uh, when he got up from his couch, a uh, little background, he, 
the, the army was fighting the Ammonites. So the soldiers out there battling it out with the Ammonites. And David was at home. Maybe, you know, there may be a suggestion in the, in the Bible that he should have been out there too, <laughs> rather than taking naps. You know. uh, but anyway, he, he, uh, he wanders out onto his rooftop, and he looks down, and he sees this beautiful woman, and she's taking a bath. And um, he asks, who, who is this? He asks the messengers, and the messengers bring back the news that this is, uh, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then the next words in the uh, scripture, this is Second uh, Samuel 11, verse 4, says, So, I think that so is really heavy laden. So, David sent his messengers to get her, and she came, came to him, and he lay with her. It's like, I see it, I want it, I have it. Right? I'm king. And this follows directly on his being told that she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. A highly upright man, as we learn. Uh, and one whom she loves dearly. And... Um, God, doesn't, God is not happy with, uh, with David. It's true that David is a man after God's own heart. And I think that means something like this, that the heart of God is reflected in the heart of David. That David's heart is formed in that way that we outline, right? David meditated day and night on the law of God. He loved the law of God. He delighted in it. He wrote psalms about it. He was eloquent in expressing his love for the concepts, <laughs> you might say, the, for the, the rules of, of a right life. And he knew that that law had been laid down for the people's benefit. You will prosper if you keep this law. It's all, it's all good. It's so wonderful. The law is so magnificent. Psalm 19, Psalm 119. Uh, the psalm is just delicious. I mean, the law is just delicious. And uh, so David is a man after God's own heart, but we look at this story and the so. So, he's a tatter over and, and 
play with her. Uh, and we, we say, what was he thinking? And the answer is, he wasn't. He wasn't thinking. He certainly wasn't thinking in terms of the law. He wasn't thinking in the way that Hebrews are supposed to think if they're after God's own heart. So, they, so God gets, is not happy with David's behavior. And he sends Nathan, the prophet. And the prophet goes to David, and he says, he tells a parable. He's a poet, actually. He, he, he indulges in metaphor. He indulges in, in a story, not probably not a literal story, although Jesus, I mean, I mean uh, David does seem to respond to it as though it's a, it's a historical story. But the story goes like this, Nathan's story. There were two men. One was very rich and had many, many sheep. And the other one was poor. And he had just one little ewe lamb. And this lamb was like a pet. It lived with the family. The kids played with it. It slept with, with the human being in the family. And it was like a member of the family. They all loved it. And the rich man had a visitor. And, the visitor, and, and he said, I've got to feed this guy, this, this visitor. I've got to give a, give a meal for him. But I don't really want to use my own sheep. So I'll just take that little ewe lamb that my neighbor has. And he took it, and he roasted it, and served it to his uh, guest. Now, David is a man after God's own heart. So he, he hears this parable, this story, and that, that story touches his heart. It touches what he cares about. It touches his way of thinking about moral righteousness and goodness. It touches him. And the, the response to this touch is anger. He says, then David's, the <coughs> scripture says, then David's anger <coughs> was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man has done, this man has, what this man, no. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He had no compassion. He didn't anticipate, this, this man didn't anticipate the suffering and the, or didn't care 
about the suffering that he was going to cause by, by taking this lamb and cooking it up for his guests. That's what David thinks, right? David is a man after God's own heart, so he, he gets it, doesn't he? He sees, he, sees, he understands <laughs> uh, the, um, the import of this story. I've, I've forgotten to, to, uh, to follow Patrick's uh, theme out a little bit here. So the first thing he understands is he, he understands the Hebrew, right? He, he, um, uh, when Nathan tells him the story, it's in David's own native language, so he puts together the, the um, subject, the verb, and the, and the attribute, and all that. He get, he's got all that straight, straight. And then he understands the whole story, kind of puts, puts all the sentences together and, and makes sense of that. <coughs> but in addition, he makes moral sense out of it. He puts it in connection with God's law and the way that a, that a, that a fully formed Hebrew um, will, will understand this, this uh, story. And, uh, <coughs> and so, and then the product of that is anger. Anger is a disposition of the, or a, a response of the disposition of the heart. And David's heart is after God's own heart. So he understands. But Nathan thinks, mm, David doesn't understand. And he says, at, right after David expresses this anger, he says, you are the man. And now David connects that story in a whole new way. He thinks back about the little Bathsheba affair, and he um, and he the, the the anger that he felt turns into guilt, and we get Psalm fifty-one as an expression of that traditionally. Um, I also left out part of the story, the story about murdering Uriah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so he not only takes away uh, uh, alienates Bathsheba from Uriah, but then he kills Uriah and and causes uh, Bathsheba great pain. Uh, the scripture says, when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. Um, okay, so, so th that story is, is meant to illustrate both the, um, the schema, what, what, um, what does it say, what does it mean, and what does it mean for me, for David, um, and to integrate the, uh, the notion of understanding, David understands uh, 
And he understands, he understands not only conceptually, you might say, if you could separate that, uh, not only in terms of the, the verbal um, matter of the law, but he also understands it in terms of his caring about it. And then, finally, he understands it in terms of himself, in connection with his own with his own misdeed. Now, um, that's <coughs> that's my exposition of the concepts. Um, we have this um, text. It's on the last page of your handout. And um, I want us to form little groups and uh, discuss this. Um, I'll read it uh, just now as a preliminary. Uh, Dunn says, He's quoted here from the devotions on the Virgin's occasions again. Um, Compare us with Rome, and he means the Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church. There was quite a bit of of conflict between Protestants and and, uh, and Roman Catholics in England at the time. Uh, Compare us with Rome, and I fear... That will belong to us, which God says and swears in the prophets. As I live, says the Lord, Sodom thy sister hath not done as thou hast done, where by the way be pleased to note that God calls even Samaria and Sodom sisters of Jerusalem. There is a fraternity grounded in charity, which nothing must detest. If Sodom and Jerusalem were sisters, Babylon and we may be so too, uterine sisters of one womb, for there is but one baptism. Though fornication itself have made that church, as some think, scarce capable of the name of a church, yet Sodom is a sister. And so that we have three questions here. Where in Dunn's text might uh, grammatical misunderstanding arise? And we correct the misunderstanding by some kind of observation about grammar. What is the meaning of the text? And what does metaphor, what metaphor conveys it? And then what meaning might it have for readers, for example, you and me, or uh, Dunn's contemporaries? So... Um, I invite you to form little groups and discuss those three questions in connection with that text.
uh, reconvene as a larger group. Folks, we need to uh, to convene together now and uh, discuss the question. Uh, the, uh, do we have the microphone for in case we need the microphone for a question <laughs> or an answer? Um, Mary, do you have the uh, microphone? Okay. All right. Let's uh, let let me um, see what people have to say about those uh, those questions uh, and the text. Do we see anything uh, that requires grammatical clarification? That's not grammatical. So and I thought, oh, okay. Well, that's so. not a question. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the, the first step actually is more than just grammar. It's also semantics. Of what the words what the words mean, right? It's right. not just the right. the sort of structural orient. So I had said compare us with Rome, and I immediately went back to the Roman Empire, rather than to the oh. church. And you clarified that very quickly. Oh. But so I thought that was a grammatical thing. But, and then we also thought oh. that the real word here was sorority rather than because it was sisters. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So, okay, those are, that's, those are good points. Uh, what about the phrase, um, let's see, uh, which nothing must be kept? It, you know, the, the, the order of the words it, in, for, in our way of speaking English would suggest that uh, nothing is a subject and detest is a verb. <laughs> but what do you think, uh, Adam? What, what is actually the grammar of, the, of that phrase? <laughs> that charity is the subject, oh. and that if one is charitable, one must not detest anything. Okay, yeah. So it means which must detest nothing. Right? Yeah. Rather than which must it, nothing must detest. Yeah. That's Dunn's uh, uh, English, as opposed to ours. Did so I get you, that right? You, you have to clarify that. And, huh? Sorry. Did I get that right? You got it right. Oh, good. Okay. I think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which nothing must detest means which must detest nothing. Um, okay. Uh, and that that helps us to understand the text, doesn't it? Because we. We, otherwise, we don't order the we don't order the parts of the sentence in in the right way. We don't construe those words like the like the 
you know, it's like misinterpreting the uh, duck rabbit or something. Okay, <coughs> and then secondly, what is the meaning of the text and what metaphor conveys it? Does anybody have a thought about that? Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. if I were to put it in my own language, I would say he's saying, be very careful about judging the Catholic Church. Um, mm -hmm. They are, in fact, uh, in some way, related to us very closely. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, when he quickly jumps from Rome to Babylon, it, it throws us a little bit. <laughs> yeah. he, he's calling them one thing, and all these yeah. uh, metaphors just tangle us up, but it's beautiful yeah. in the end. Yeah. What, what, okay. what metaphor do you think is sort of the master metaphor in this, in this whole exhortation? This sister, yeah, that's what it is. It's, I think, I mean, I'm, yeah. I, don't, I only have my humble opinion, but, but I think it's uh, a sister. That we're, we're supposed to think of the, the Roman Catholics as, as sisters. They're, they're a, a, it's a sister church to the Anglican church. He's speaking as an Anglican, uh, but he wants to have loving relations with the, with the Catholics. Um, so, so how does sister work as a metaphor? Does it have emotional impact of some sort that, that, that's like the, uh, the parable that Nathan tells? Okay. Um, this is not, yeah, I think that we thought the idea that there is but one baptism was a very important clause there, mm -hmm. that we are all still the church, even though fortification itself has made that church. And we were really, we talked about, well, what does he mean by fortification there? And yeah, Mark said fortification could be a metaphor for unfaithfulness or illegitimacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's right. That's, uh, that's the way I would read it. Uh, so, <coughs> I mean, the Catholic Church has a long history of fornication, right? Um, there, they, uh, in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church was very, very corrupt and hardly, hardly even a church. But, but what he's saying is, they were baptized, <laughs> and, and that's what counts. They, they are, they're our sisters, they're our, oh, that, that church is our, our sister church. Okay, and then what, yeah, what my meaning might the, the, the um, discourse have for leaders? I think we've already touched on that, but does uh, anybody have anything to say about that? About the third question, uh, what, what is the meaning for me, <laughs> uh, so to speak? What is the meaning for us? Sure. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, if um, the Catholic Church is Sodom and Babylon and Rome uh, and Samaria and all those bad things, nonetheless, she's my sister and I have to care for those people. Yeah. yeah. I have to recognize them as part yeah. of the, the church and we've been commanded to love. Yeah. Yeah. So if I, if I, and relating to uh, 
to somebody from a church that I despise, maybe uh, the Pentecostals or the Roman Catholics or whatever church you might choose to despise, um, and I'm reminded, hey, that church, that church is, this, is a sister of, of all souls. It's a sister of the Anglican Communion. It's, uh, that, and what, what is a sister? I mean, I love my sisters. I really love them. You know, they, they mean a lot to me. I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't go around treating them badly. Uh, so it, sister has this emotional power. Right? If, it, if, you, if you take it seriously, I guess it depends a little bit on what your sisters are like. But, um, Mary? I, I think that context, the context here is so incredible in a way. If you think about when John Dunn was living, priests yeah. were hiding in cubby holes yeah. in all over England, and the Catholic Church was not allowed to exist. And, you know, uh, not that long earlier, Catholics and Protestants had been fighting each other and killing each other. So That's the right. context is actually, for Dunn, really radical. Yes. Dunn's brother himself was a victim of the of the, uh, the persecution of, of Catholics. He, he uh, took a, when he was just a student in Oxford, he took a, a Catholic priest into his room and protected him. And then and they, they found out, so they drew and quartered the, uh, uh, the uh, priest, and they threw Dunn's brother in prison. He got sick and died. Uh, so Dunn has a very personal connection to this, and when he says uh, you should love them and your sisters, uh, he, he's, he's speaking with authentic um, authentic love. Uh, okay, well, thank you all. <laughs> You're welcome.